0: All right, Ephesians, your life in the family of God. Which one of those characters do you think I was? I mean, somebody had to green screen me to make that thing, right? Okay, I think I was the one, I think I was the breakdancer? Is that what you're thinking? No, you're wrong, you're wrong. Welcome to Seacoast, my name is Pastor Dale. And we're going to see as that video kind of sets you up, we're going to begin to talk about the second half of the book of Ephesians. First half laid the foundation. It laid the foundation theologically for who we are in Christ and it's a family of God. Now, chapter 4 is going to take a huge turn and transition into what I call the real life of a real family in the real world. And it can be a lot of fun. It can also have a lot of, a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of tough challenges. But we're going to begin that study today. I'm Jazz. okay? Pray with me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our creative team kind of launching us into the idea of family. The idea of the fun of being part of something bigger than us. The idea of going somewhere together. The idea of what it actually means to not just be a child of God, but a part of his family. So we ask that you teach us and uh, shape us, even change us uh, as a result of our encounter with the truth of you. Father, this is the ultimate way in which we hear your voice. It's through your word. So teach us from your word today. In Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, open your Bibles, get there, open your iBooks, whatever you're going to turn, you know, your eye, get get your phone, your electronic Bible. some of you are dialing it up or you're checking email, Steve Cade. No, I'm not, not, you're on, you're on, okay, get your Bible app open. Thank you very much. Yeah, take out your outline too if you'd like to follow along, it'll help you always learn a little more. Pretend Pretend with me for a moment you were house shopping, looking to make a huge investment, looking to buy a home. So you meet with someone that says, hey, I've got a home for you, and they show up, and here's what they bring you to look at. They bring a big roll of something under their arm. The sheets of paper are about this wide and about this long, and they're all white and blue. And they say, I got everything you could ever want to know about this house for you to look at. Now, how excited are you about that? Are you ready to buy, yes or no? No. Why? What I'm describing is a role of what? A role of blueprints. A roll of blueprints. If you've never seen one, you've never built a home, you've never been a building, you've never been in business as a builder. But you know something? I would never buy a home off of blueprints. Blueprints bore me. They have all kinds of detail. They have infinite detail that if you're a builder like Rich, you probably like blueprints. If you're, if you're in the contracting business, you think, yeah, they're giving me all the detail. Man, I got a page on just the foundation that no one else will ever see before, you know, once the thing's up. What's going to be under the ground? What's going to be above the ground? I got a wiring diagram. Oh, wow, that excites electricians i got a plumbing diagram, you know something, what I care about that, all I care about the wiring diagram is answer this, when I throw the switch, will it work, when I flush the toilet, will it work, amen, yeah, and will it drain, and where does it drain, into my backyard, or out to the street, or on the street, or below the street, I just want to know it's going to take the stuff in my house and move it out, I want to know the drains are going to work, the electricity is going to work, I want to know what kind of roof it has maybe, but you know, the bottom line is, blueprints don't Really, give me an image of what I'm buying. And certainly, they don't tell me what life would be like in it. So I say, hey, I don't want blueprints. I want to go to the next level. So, what does the guy show me? He goes from blueprints to what? He shows me a color rendering. So, ah, oh, okay. So that's what this thing is going to turn into. Now I might be tempted to buy, but I'm not ready yet because I don't really want to just go off of some picture of a home a color rendering even you know because it's not quite good enough so the people that make their living selling homes around Southern California do they set up a little stand on the corner with blueprints or renderings answer no what do they do they show me what They show me a model so now I've got the model now I've got the model. Now I can walk into the home and, and I can see it all decorated out and with all the upgrades they don't tell me about until after I say I like them and all that. And how it's going to cost me. And, but now I can see and touch and literally walk through the home. And now I can begin to picture life in that home. True or false? Partially true. There's still something missing if I really want to know what life is like in that home. What's missing? huh people and what comes with people mess <laughs> the problem with the model home is it never shows me the mess it never shows me in full operation with three preschool children running around every day undoing what mom just did it never shows me the messiness of my life in that home which we call family And I share with you this little story because I wanted to set you up for what I think is happening as we go from Ephesians 1, 2, 3 to Ephesians 4, 5, 6. Because Ephesians 1, 2, 3 just did this. It laid the blueprints for what it means to be a part of the family of God. It laid the blueprints for this thing that God is building called His church. It's even in the language of chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians. In case you missed it, let me just tease you. Ephesians 2.16, he says, I want to make out of all these diverse peoples one body of Christ through the cross. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 to say this. I'll read it to you. He says, and having been built, he says, we're going to make a household of God having been built on the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets, that is the scriptures, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a building for God, a dwelling of God through the spirit. So what he's saying is God is into building a building. You're a part of it. I'm a part of it. The scriptures lay a foundation for it. Jesus is the cornerstone of the whole deal. But this is like God is saying, I want you to understand the metaphor here. That in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what he's saying is, God is in the business of helping you become a child of God. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, you become a child of God. We learned that already. You're adopted by the Father into the family. Remember that? And loved incredibly you are redeemed and forgiven of your sin by the son because he dies for you and rose from the dead you are sealed and secured so you never can be lost by the spirit who comes to indwell you so you're adopted into the family become a child of god but now the big surprise in chapters two and three is you don't just get jesus you get a family and that god wants this family of god And he mixes his metaphors. First, he talks about kind of the family of God is kind of like the dwelling place for God on planet Earth so that Jesus Christ can do his mission of being a light of hope and help and forgiveness and the gospel, the good news can go out to the whole world. He wants to actually do it through you and me. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. But chapters 1, 2, and 3 don't contain any messiness. That's interesting because it's kind of like chapters 1, 2, and 3 are building the model home. This is what God wants to build. You're a part of it. But now, chapter 4, let's talk about actually trying to be the family of God in the home, in the church, together. And that includes messiness. Pray with me. Father, thanks for your word again. Before we dive into it deeper, I just want to stop and pray, oh wow, God, teach us, give us an exciting vision for what it means to be a part of the dwelling of God, where you want to live your life through us as your church, where you want us to be that dwelling, that place uh, that brings hope and help to our culture and to those seeking the true God. So I pray that you teach us about that, but teach us how to live in the midst of the messiness of the family. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let's listen to the Word of God first, and then I'm going to break it down for you, and we're going to study it together. Open it up. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I want to stop right there. Okay, I covered a lot, right? Okay. Therefore, why is that important? Most important word in the verse. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should ask, what's it there for? Okay, That's a good memory. Because it's always there for a reason. It's there to point you backwards. Anytime you see the word therefore, he's about to tell you the compli- the implications, and yes, sometimes complication, of living in response to what he just taught. So if you don't connect chapter 4 to chapters 1, 2, and 3, you're already missing the point of the passage. So he says, therefore, in light of the fact that you are a new person in Christ, and he begins to lay down a challenge. Therefore, I, as the prisoner of the Lord, and in other words, I don't have an option. I've got to tell you what you're about to hear. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, chapters 1, 2, 3, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Amen. I added the amen, okay? Just felt like I needed it what's he saying in this what he's going to do is two things he's three things he's going to give us an exhortation a huge challenge he's going to tell us what are what's essential to pull that off and then he is going to uh, not just tell us what's essential to pull it off but he's going to give us the essence of what makes it uh, makes it possible listen to the challenge the exhortation walk worthy of the call if you want to follow along here we go he begins by saying this i implore you In fact, there's three key phrases. I implore you uh, to walk, and then to walk worthy of your call. I implore you. It's an interesting word. I mean, it means to urge, encourage. I even like the, uh, the message or the New Living Translation on this goes a little further and says, but I beg you. And it's a very strong word in the Greek language. I am begging you. This is not like, hey, let me give you a suggestion. Okay, you want a tip? This is not a tip or a suggestion. This goes beyond command. This goes to this is urgent. Okay, that's the essence of it. I urge you. Secondly, I urge you to walk your faith, to walk worthy of your calling. Anytime you see the word walk in Scripture and in the next part of this book, you're going to see the word walk at least six times. Walk in this, walk in that, walk in this, walk in that. Why does he talk about walking so much? It's because he's not talking about physical walking. He's talking about daily living. When something is talked about the walk of the Christian life, it's the routine of working Jesus into your everyday natural rhythms of life. It's a phrase i learned from ryan he talks a lot in our staff meetings about let's work jesus into the natural rhythms of life in other words it's not following jesus is not just about doing a new community serve day as a church although i love the fact we're doing that on, in february but it's also just about every day as a community serve day as the church okay it's every day that we're in the world living out our faith that's the challenge that's what he means by walking and he it says and walk worthy of your calling Again, it's not just a spiritual lingo little phrase. When he says walk worthy of your calling, then you've got to ask what question? What is the calling? And I think it really breaks down in chapters 1, 2, 3 into these three big ideas that I've already briefly mentioned, but I'll call them out one more time. Chapter 1, you are a new person with a new family. New person with a new family. You're adopted by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Wow! That's incredible. You're a whole new person with a new family, with new life that was delivered by grace, by the unconditional love of God. You've experienced love like you've never experienced it from your parents or anybody else because God actually loved you knowing every bad thing about you for your whole life, and he still chose you. Now, what's up with that? I mean, if you knew every bad secret about Dale and and I was on your list of who do you want to choose to hang with, You would probably not choose me, but you know, God, knowing everything about us, chose us, adopted us, redeemed us. You have new life by grace and unconditional love, and you have a new purpose, which I've already touched on. That is to be the body of Jesus on earth. It's interesting that he uses actually three different metaphors and kind of mixes them. So you'll hear me mix them today. Okay. For one, it's the metaphor that we are the body of Christ. Okay, Christ has ascended back into heaven, but his physical presence is the church. His physical presence on the planet is the church. We are his arms. We are his legs. We are his mouth. We are the touch of Jesus Christ on our culture and our world. Jesus has chosen to work through us as his body. And he uses a lot of... um, really cool metaphors that we'll get into in two more weeks about how being part of the body of christ is it calls on all of us to be free to be different and unique as different as a toe is from an ear all right uh you know toes ears nose feet arms legs it's all different, but it's all needed. I mean, to have an overall body that works and does all that the body needs to do, you need all those diverse parts. And we're going to study that beginning actually next week even. So you have a new purpose to be the body of Christ on earth. He, the metaphors he uses, one is the body. Two is he says in chapter two that he is building a dwelling place for God on the planet. So God inhabits this body. And that's why he talks about the dwelling place for God. We were like the temple of God uh, on the planet. So it's like, that's why he talks about foundations and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the truth of God's word, the cornerstone of Jesus. And, you know, so we're all parts of like building a house or building a building. So he's, we're the body of Christ. We're the dwelling place uh, for God, like, like a building. And then we are a family. That's the third metaphor. Therefore, be like the family of God. You don't just become a child of God. You actually become a part of a family. And I really believe in the Christian church in America, this has been largely overlooked. Many of you, perhaps, have been nurtured in an environment that said, you go to church because you want a relationship with God. We even call it a personal relationship with God. It's me and God. You come to church, well, because I need something for me and for me and God to work with. I need to hear a good sermon. I need a little bit of worship. When in reality, when you come to Jesus, you don't just get Jesus. You get his family. I love it when I hear a testimony by someone who says it better than I can. Listen to this young man explain it.
1: When I first began to follow Jesus, um, there were things that I began to understand well, you know, things I got really interested in, God's grace, um, how big God was. I was reading books that showed me how big he was. I was really interested in God's attributes. Um, one of the things that took me a long time to fully understand was how central the church was to what God was doing. And so I talked to guys all the time who really say, hey, I really love Jesus. Uh, and I, I'll i attend church because I like to hear good sermons, but their commitment to the local church isn't there that much. And you see that a lot, even with college students. You know, college is kind of that age where you just kind of float around in nothingness, almost like you're not a real person yet. You're trying to figure out what being a real person is, and you're going to, like, train for almost like, hey, I'm not a doctor yet. I'm in medical school. Almost like, hey, you know, I'm just this kind of my training stage, and I'll really get into it once I kind of move on to that next adult stage. And I want to say there is no... Good, healthy, regular pattern of the Christian life if you are not joined with a local church, if you're not in covenant with other Christians. Not just I have some Christian friends who we talk to sometimes. I'm talking about the way that God set it out, that there are leaders that you submit to. There are other Christians you covenant to to pray for and care for. That There's actually something that other Christians can do to help you if you fall into unrepentant sin. All the beautiful mercies God has given us to gather together, to sing together, to sit on a preaching together. To preach together. That is huge uh, in the life of a Christian. And so we can't say I've been adopted by God. He's my father. I'm glad he is. But I'm just going to ignore his people altogether. That that doesn't make any sense, because if you are adopted in his family, you now have brothers and sisters. So when we become new Christians. Our identity changes as individuals, but also in another way, kind of corporately. So it's like when I got married, I remember sitting on the couch, I was like, man, life as I knew it's so different. I don't think of anything the same way. There's a very similar thing when we get saved is that we can't just think of things individually anymore because just like when I get married, now I'm one with another sinner. We have to wrestle with things together. When we trust Jesus, not only do we come one with Jesus, we become one with his people. There's a unity that Jesus has already uh, won for us. that we're now beginning to fight for. And so just like I can't just get married and then decide to just ignore my wife. It's like What are you doing in the same way? You can't just be adopted into a new family and just decide you're just going to ignore your brothers and sisters. It makes no sense. It's it's illogical. So not only are you robbing them of the ways that you can edify them, you're robbing yourself of the ways that can edify you. At It is core to what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and so I encourage that man, young man strongly, do whatever you can to find a church that preaches God's word, that's centered around the gospel, and where people want to fight to love him more.
0: I love it when a guy says it so clearly. You know, I, I think he's right on target. And that's something that really wasn't taught to me when I became a follower of Jesus. I mean, it was just kind of a secondary idea. Oh, yeah, and by the way, find a church. But that's much more than that. And I think he said it very well. What he's saying is exactly what we're studying today, is that when you come to Jesus Christ, you come to Christ, but you also engage. You don't just become a child of God. You become a part of the family of God. And that's why this next few months is critical for your spiritual growth, because we're going to be going deep into what's this messy life like because as soon as he says now you got brothers and sisters guess what my memories of my brothers and sisters are not all smooth great memories right say how many of you had a brother and sister that picked on you how many of you had a brother and sister that irritated you how many of you still have a brother and sister who irritates you say amen, amen. yeah we all do don't we yeah in fact i saw a little motto i can't help but see it because it hangs in my own kitchen my wife uh, put it up probably as she thought about our family and it says like this it says on this little plaque in our kitchen in the burke 's home it says families are like fudge mostly sweet with a few nuts <laughs> mostly sweet with a few nuts and i thought oh my gosh that's my family that's my family and that's life in the family of god and that's why that it begins with this challenge to recognize that Wow, we need to live out this new life in the family of God and take it seriously. But to live it out, secondly, there are a few essentials. And I would summarize it in this way. Walk in love. If you're going to walk worthy of your calling in Christ, you've got to learn to walk in love. And he describes it in verses 2 and 3. Follow with me. Here we go. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience and patience, Showing tolerance for one another in love. There's your phrase. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, in those two verses, what he gives me is he gives me one key attitude, three key actions, and then the common goal that we've got to be committed to. Let me break it down. The one key attitude, he starts with it. He says, with humility. With humility. The word for humility is a common word in, in Greek. It means, it means basically with a servant mindset. It's best expressed probably in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Write it down. Look it up this week or do the five encounters with God and I'll take you there. Because it says, uh, let each of you uh, not just look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. In fact, it begins, let each of you have this mindset. He says, have this mindset in you, uh, you know, that you consider others' needs more important than your own, and you're not just looking out for your own personal interests, but the interest of others, and why do we do that? Because it says, have this mindset in you, which was the same mindset that Jesus had, when even though he was God, he didn't have to regard his equality with God something to be Grasp or put on display all the time, but yet with humility of mind, he humbled himself, took on the form of a bond servant. So when we live with an attitude that begins, "How can I serve you?" then all of a sudden family begins to work because family is messy. But underneath it, it begins with a servant spirit. That's the number one priority for a good marriage. It's the number one priority for a good family. It's the number one priority for a good church. Is be servant minded how can i serve you how can i help meet your needs instead of worrying about just getting my needs met very different very different perspective so it starts with this underlying attitude that i think is just essential to a healthy family of god number two then he gives three expressions of how you live out of humility and love out of humility he says three, let me define them for you. Gentleness, patience, and forbearance. He says with gentleness, that's the choice to handle with care. I'll give you my short definitions. Patience is the choice to wait. Forbearance is the choice to love in spite of. Sometimes translated to tolerate, uh, or my favorite translation is, uh, is in the uh, New Living Bible. It says to put up with in love. I used to do a lot of uh, premarital counseling and I would talk a lot with couples about all three of these. You can think of illustrations of how do they express love. You know, gentleness, the choice to handle people with care, to not be harsh, to not be angry, to not have a hurtful spirit, but to say, you know, people are fragile. People need to be loved and handled gently, but unfortunately God didn't make us with a, with a stamped impression on our forehead that says fragile handle with care okay I think it ought to be part of our DNA to have that right there in the front you know or for me you could put it right up here I don't care but you know because he'd still be seeing it but but handling people with care it's going to come up as we go through the rest of this passage we're going to learn how husbands and wives should handle one another with care we're going to learn how parents are to parent their child in a way that doesn't anger and exasperate them. We're going to learn how when you go into the workplace, you can treat people in a loving way that represents Jesus by handling people with care. My favorite handle with care passage is Ephesians 4.29. That's going to be a part of a six-week package we're going to do on healthy relationships. This is a hot topic coming up, so don't miss a single week this coming, this coming winter and spring. We'll spend six weeks and one of the sermons will be on a verse, uh, Ephesians 4, 29, that says, let no unwholesome speech or word come out of your mouth, but only words or speech that, that is edifying, that builds the other person up, that it gives grace to those who hear. Uh, you know, wow, that's an incredible verse about how to, how to talk to people, especially when you're upset with them. You see, family, includes messiness and in that in in a in a messy family in a messy church at times we got to be gentle with one another at times we got to be patient with one another that's the choice to wait but the word patience isn't being used just in terms of hey i'm ready to go are you ready i mean that's that's a real clear illustration uh especially in marriage uh, whenever sometimes he or she one of them tends to take longer to get ready than the other one uh and you know i I won't say which which one she is but um (laughs) i do that every time but you know the, the reality is we have to be patient with people what about being patient with people while they change being patient with people while they struggle with their habits or their sins being patient with people when they when they when they just need more time being patient with people when they're not ready to run as fast as you're ready to run See, there's always times when you're going to raise your healthy kids or, or be in a marriage or to be in a, the life of a church family, man, it's going to require gentleness. It's going to be require that we love. by get, It's the choice to be patient, choice to be gentle. Third one, choice to forbear. My favorite one is to put up with in love. Uh, in my first church, it was a church that was in a university town, so we had about 50% of the crowd was college students. About 300 college students and about 300 community people. Uh, most of them work for the university. But when you have 300 college students, you got a lot of romance going on, right? You got a lot of romance, you got a lot of engagements, you got a lot of marriages. Man, I was doing weekends, I was doing weddings, 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 weddings. I thank God that fewer of you are getting married, uh, although some of you need to. Um, but anyway, I'm just teasing. God honors the single life without a doubt. In fact, there's advantages to being single. So let me me correct my little point of humor there. But I know I needed a wife. I was pretty desperate without one. God knew that I was wired, that I needed a wife. And when I got a wife, I thank God that I got some good counseling on how to have a good marriage. And one of the things that my counselor taught me and that I used when I did premarital counseling is I would ask this question. Next week when we get together, tell me three things about the person you're engaged to that you're going to have to put up with in love. They may never change, but you love them and you will put up with them in love. Next week, it almost always went down this way. They'd show up. I'd ask the couple, "All right, who wants to go first? Husband, you know, which which guy or the gal? Who wants to go first? Share with me your, your three things. Only give me your top three. You probably have 10, but only give me your top three that you're going to have to put up with in love. And about that time, one of them looks at the other one and they look back at and they say, you know, I really worked at this, Pastor Dale, but I couldn't think of anything. I mean, what's to not like about her? What's to not like about him? I really don't think we'll have this problem. <laughs> yeah. So I would just say, okay, let's set the appointment one month after you're married, let's meet again. And please, shorten the list to 10. <laughs> so all you got to do is start living with somebody. You start doing life together. Not just going on dates. See, going on dates is like visiting model homes. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's good. Yeah. See, first service didn't get that. Yeah. yeah, going on dates is like visiting model homes together and saying, what's it like living in a home? Beautiful home but none of the mess. Life in the family of God is going to include some messiness. See, it fascinates me how smart God is. Because as soon as he begins chapters four through six, he doesn't wait till the end in chapter six to tell us this. The very first thing he says is, hey, you better understand you're going to need at times you are going to have to be gentle with each other. You're going to have to be patient with each other. You're going to have to forbear with one another. There are things you're going to have to put up with because we're all different and God is going to use us and mold us into the family of God. But brothers and sisters sometimes irritate. So do we have grace? Do we have love? So much in our system as followers of Jesus that we can handle that. In love. Put up with one another in love. And what's the goal? Well, the goal is, the one essential goal is to preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace. He says, keep peace in the body. And he says, that we are diligent. Look at verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That phrase, being diligent, means to work at it. The NIV, which I like a little better in this, the NIV translation says, make every effort to preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace. Make every effort to do it. It's going to be work. It's going to be work. Because that's what families are like. It's going to be work. But it's important. It's so important because if you're going to function as a body, you've got to be at unity with one another. You don't have to like or disagree and agree on everything, but yet you've got to be somehow bonded and committed to move in the same direction live by the same values because if you don't then it's my opinion against your opinion my wants against your wants my needs against your needs and you're just gonna have chaos it happens in marriages happens in families and it happens in churches so how do we find that commonality around which We can live and walk in love because the command is to, you got to walk worthy of this incredible new life, new family, new calling that you have. If you're going to walk worthy, you got to walk in love because you got to do it with other people that are kind of a pain in the backside at times. And if you're going to walk worthy and walk in love, then where do we find our unity? And that's the third part of the passage. Man, I love how smart God is. Verse 4, there is one. Here's why we need to be diligent to preserve this unity. See, Jesus gives us the unity. All we do is mess it up. So the unity is given to us by Christ, but we have to do the work of preserving it. And the rest of this book will tell us how to do that. But he gets, a, he gets us off to the right start by telling us the essence of the unity which is, don't just walk in love, walk united by what I call the ones. There's seven of them. Here they are. Here are the ones. It says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And that adds up to eight, not seven. I couldn't count. I think I combined the God and Father piece. So these are the ones that really unite us. Now, I know I wouldn't be able to go into all of these in one sermon, but I'm going to give you my short essence of how each one adds to our unity. If you are one body, then you've got to move together. Just that image that, look, we've got to preserve our unity. We've got to love and forgive and be patient and kind and wait on one another and, and, and forbear with one another because we're in this thing together. Picture a body that chooses not to wait on other parts of the body. What do you have? And what if the arms said, you know something, we were ready a long time ago. If you can't get your shoes on, we're out of here. So the arms just walk off by themselves. What would that look like? It would look kind of strange, wouldn't it? You know, and then the arms would get a little bit away and they go, oh, wait a minute. Would someone please kick the ball? Now we're here. You know, and they look, well, the feet are so, you know, they're out. The, you know, it's best to take your whole body when you go somewhere. Trust me. It's a basic truth of life, and it's a truth of church, but it means we are one body. We have one spirit, so stay dependent. If, if it's one spirit that we all share that empowers whatever we do, then there's no room for pride, and pride is the opposite of humility. If humility bonds the body, remember that? then pride is going to be separating. It's going to separate. And we become prideful when some of us think, hey, you know, I got my act together. Why don't you get yours together? And we realize, you know, anything I do worth praise is by the grace and glory of God. It's by the grace of God to the glory of God. So I got nothing to be proud of. I just got reasons to say, wow, God, I can't believe you did that through someone like me. So if we understand that our giftedness and any even our life change and things that we do are rooted in the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the power of God, then we've got no room for any of us to be prideful. And that keeps us humble and dependent upon God and dependent on one another. It's a unifying factor. One body, one spirit, so stay dependent. One hope, so pursue the common dream. Now, why do I write that? When I study this idea of one hope, I thought, what's this talking about? I, I think it's kind of a double-edged thing. On the one end, uh, 53 times in the New Testament, this concept of a common hope comes up. It's a very common theme. What do we hope in? We, we have the hope of our salvation. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of the return of Christ. We have the hope of heaven to live toward and to know that that's our destiny We have the hope of eternal life together. See, what he's saying is, man, you are not only connected to Jesus, connected to the family. This is a forever family. And we've got an eternity ahead of us. So, wow, so be one. I think there's another element of it, though, that says this. We have a common hope or dream of impacting our world for Jesus Christ. And every person, every Christian, and every church is given a mandate to to live for the hope of things that are eternal. Jesus hints at this when he says don't lay up treasure on earth, lay up your treasure in heaven where 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 it'll have eternal results and and when we live for eternal things and we strive to accomplish things of eternal value together, then that is when we have that type of a hope or dream it unites you're gonna see it played out in the next few weeks in the NFL as teams compete for championships right next year the Chargers the LA Chargers the San Diego Chargers I gotta have a dream right they are gonna compete all the way they stay they win but whoever stays and wins this year I guarantee you part of the reason will be that even though The team is made up of people that may even struggle to like one another at times. They're very different. They have different tastes, different lifestyles. But what unites them is that they're striving for a common goal. And when you do that as a team, one of the most common things you'll hear on a newscast after a great victory is someone will say this. I think the reason we won the championship this year is this team is more like a family we care for one another love each other put up with one another strive together for a common goal of winning this championship when we as a church strive together to make an impact in Africa that could change the lives of everyday people getting prostitutes off the street knowing Jesus and into a job and into a church Or helping train pastors so that they are healthy with healthier families, or helping do whatever else we do in Africa, or when we do a community serve day to get out in mass and kind of shock the community. Oh, that's a different way of doing church. You actually do church and worship by serving the community. That's just such a radical idea. I guarantee you it will get the attention of the media and of your neighbors and of your friends. So, you know, when when you do something together, Man, it, it it bonds you as a family. We need to think like that. We pursue one common hope. In this church, we often describe it, especially more recently, what's coming to, together as our staff team, I think, is is more that we are committed to building disciples who demonstrate the love of Jesus. Therefore, we want to love local in our region. We want to love global around the world. And that's what we want to, to have as Who we are as a church. And that dream is not easy to accomplish. But yet if we pursue it together, it is a unifying factor. We have one Lord. That one's easy. So he's in control, not us. He leads, we follow. We have one faith. When I looked at this one, I thought, what's he talking about? One faith. And when I recognize, I think what he's talking about here is not that we all just... uh, commonly believe in jesus he's already covered that we have one lord i think what he's saying is we have one body of truth that we believe in one common truth centered in the scriptures that that it unites a church because it's not just let's get together and debate dale's opinion versus your opinion or ryan's opinion versus susie's opinion versus bill's opinion because my opinion doesn't matter we have a common body of truth called the faith that I believe unites us and brings unity we need to understand our faith and always go back to the Word of God we have one gospel we have one baptism this one we'll study later in the book but it could mean one of two things either the one baptism of the Spirit that where everyone is indwelt with the Spirit or one baptism that we've uh, to display our faith publicly That is water baptism, one confession by all or one spirit in all. Actually, both are totally true and could be true in this passage. If it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's the gift of the Holy Spirit and his indwelling. Here's my definition. His presence, his indwelling presence given to every Christian, every believer um, by God. There's a missing word there. Sorry about that. Given to every believer by God at salvation. Romans 8 9 Uh, if it's the the baptism where we are we are uh, immersed in water which we practice here at Seacoast different churches sprinkle dip drip I don't really care but the reality is it's it's a symbolic public profession of faith it's the person you know it's a public expression of a personal decision to follow Jesus it's a symbol in scripture I believe of the cleansing of sin and the resurrection to new life in Christ. Therefore, in our church we we practice it after a person comes to faith. other churches often baptize infants we don't, we don't do that here but you know but that's the main thing is to recognize here's what he's saying we're in this thing together. we've all professed our faith together to follow Christ we've, we all have the same spirit and then finally he wraps up, we have one God and Father, which means we have one eternal family. We are one family of God made up of a bunch of people mostly sweet sometimes nutty but called to be diligent to love one another put the love of Jesus Christ on display in the way we love each other and then the way we love on our worlds if we do that We become a place where God can dwell and work and move in incredible ways. That's my dream. It's not my dream, that's God's dream. It's God's dream for not just you, it's God's dream for us. Because you're not just a you and God. You're a part of a family. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for calling us to family, to calling us to to be a family that goes into it knowing that at times we're going to need patience, we're going to need perseverance, we're going to need tolerance, we're going to need to put up with each other in love, learn from each other, grow together. But thank you for the exciting journey of being part of something bigger than us, part of the family of God. Father, even as we give to you now in worship, and these gifts are all just part of us saying to you, we love you, we trust you, and we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.